Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. This is Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. Since the pandemic began, there hasn't been a worse week in Georgia, at least in terms of patients hospitalized with COVID-19. Emergency rooms are inundated. Some hospitals are turning patients away for lack of ICU space. At least one out of every three patients hospitalized right now in Georgia is there for COVID-19. To help beleaguered frontline workers, Governor Brian Kemp this week says he's deploying hundreds of troops to hospitals across the state to help with everything from directing crowds to disinfecting facilities. And the governor's speaking more bluntly than ever before about the potential consequences of going unvaccinated. You're going to remain at risk of being in the hospital with COVID-19. And you run, run the risk of being on a ventilator for two or three weeks and then dying. And yet Georgia's vaccination rate remains dismal. Just 42% of Georgians are fully vaccinated, compared to a nationwide average of 53%. Health officials say vaccination is critical in the fight against the Delta variant. And perhaps the most vulnerable population are children under 12 who still are not eligible for a shot. CDC data showed Georgia is among the states breaking records for the number of children hospitalized for COVID-19. For a first-hand look at the situation in Georgia's pediatric hospitals with COVID-19 and with the rising rates of other respiratory infections, I'm joined by Dr. Matthew Lynham. He's an infectious disease specialist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and Emory University. The narrative of this pandemic for the first year or so was that kids are largely going to be spared the worst outcomes of COVID-19. To what degree has the emergence of the Delta variant upended that narrative in, in your view? And going back and looking at some of the original studies that came out that suggested that children were largely spared from the pandemic, a lot of those, those studies came out when you know, children were being sequestered at home, you know, schools were doing virtual learning. In some ways, they were largely spared because of their limited interactions. And we're actually seeing that children and adolescents have rates of infection that are as high as adults, and in some cases, even even a little higher. What we're seeing now is a combination of a variant of the virus that is way more contagious uh, than the earlier variants, and a, a population of children who for the most part, are not eligible for being vaccinated, but are also now back in school. They're also more involved in their extracurricular activities like sports and spending time with their friends. So what I think we're seeing right now is this combination of a more contagious variant, children who are much more active and significantly at this point, um, there's very low percentage of vaccination at this time, you know, if you're under the age of 12, you're not eligible to be vaccinated. So that's a, that's a large chunk of the pediatric population. But even when you look at children who are eligible, only about 33% of children between the ages of 12 and 15 are fully vaccinated, and only 43% of children 16 to 18 years of age are fully vaccinated. Even in the population of children that are eligible for vaccination, our numbers are, are very low. 
How are you and your colleagues holding up in the middle of this surge? You know, we're definitely seeing a lot of sick kids in the hospital right now with COVID-19. In a lot of ways, I think they seem a little bit sicker than I remember them earlier in the pandemic. As we moved into the beginning of the summer, you know, vaccinations were going up, cases were going down. We actually at one point reached our lowest number of cases of children that were hospitalized, where we actually had some periods of time where we had no children in the hospital uh, with COVID-19. But then as we begin to see more circulation of the Delta variant and more cases, uh, we begin to start seeing more and more children in the hospital. I think our peak in July of this year was 17 patients at one time in the hospital, Um, but that's uh, since climbed um, to our current peak, which is uh, we have 38 patients in our system. That is our highest number of children in the hospital at any one time. How is treating kids with COVID-19 different than treating adults with COVID-19? Is, is there any substantive difference? A lot of what we're doing is following sort of the adult treatment guidelines uh, for using steroids like dexamethasone, in some cases, uh, treating children with the antiviral remdesivir, you know, monoclonal antibody therapies and things like that. But for most treatments, you know, we have less data for their use in children and have to go based on uh, what we know from adult studies. When you're treating a patient, what are you, what are you looking for before you even sort of prescribe a course of, of, of therapy for them? How sick they are, their level of risk, Most of the children that we're seeing in the hospital right now have some pre-existing condition. I think a lot of people think of things like cancer or autoimmune disease or things like that, but I think it's important to remember that there are other pre-existing conditions that can make children very sick with COVID-19, like asthma or being significantly overweight. But I think it's also important to keep in mind, you know, we still have children that are hospitalized with many other things, including a number of different other uh, respiratory viruses that are also circulating right now. Emergency room doctors are seeing an increase in COVID-19 infections among the unvaccinated and the respiratory virus called RSV among children. RSV has similar symptoms to COVID, like cough, congestion, and breathing issues. It's more common in the fall and winter. UNC's chief of pediatric emergency medicine says she's seeing a 30% increase in RSV cases right now compared to summer 2019. And we're actually seeing uh, surges in those other respiratory viruses that we typically don't see in the summer, we typically see in the winter. RSV is one that can cause significant illness in small children. It's also one that I think we track a little bit more, and I think we use it as a marker for some of the other respiratory viruses that are circulating. Is it worth discussing how you distinguish RSV from COVID-19 because they're both respiratory diseases and, and, and they're both spreading among children, right? Most of these respiratory viruses are often pretty indistinguishable from each other clinically. So how can you tell if it's something mild or COVID-19? SSM Health says they see cases of RSV every year, but its symptoms are pretty similar to coronavirus. Fevers, coughing, and wheezing are all common. SSM Health says it's important people pay close attention to their symptoms and how their illness is progressing in order to decide the best course of action. That also makes it challenging as we move into the school year and the implications certainly from a public health standpoint are are very different. 
You mentioned that you have 38 pediatric patients uh, who are battling COVID-19 at the moment. Are any of them vaccinated? Because we've heard about some breakthrough infections if you talk about pediatric patients who are over 12. We have seen a few children um, that have had breakthrough infections, but I don't think we've had a single child that was fully vaccinated that required hospitalization. The vaccines were designed to prevent severe illness, hospitalization, and death, and they remain, even with the Delta variant, highly effective at doing that job. The vaccines were also, early on, showed that they were very effective at preventing symptomatic and asymptomatic infections as well. And that helped cut down on the transmission of the virus and I think played a large role in the drop of cases that we saw across the country. But unfortunately, when those people have breakthrough infections, they can potentially transmit the virus to other people. In early August, I know that the American Academy of Pediatrics sent a letter to the FDA urging it to work aggressively to approve a vaccine for kids under 12. And then now we have Francis Collins at the NIH saying, well, it's likely going to be later this year at the soonest. The companies, Pfizer and Moderna, are are working hard on collecting data from rigorous trials to be sure they've got that part right. But actually, the data hasn't been submitted to FDA yet. Uh, Pfizer thinks maybe by the end of September, they'll be ready to send in their trial data. And then FDA will have to review it. I got to be honest, I don't see the approval for kids 5 to 11 uh, coming much before the end of 2021. That means that millions of parents are going to be sending their kids under 12 to school, in-person school. There might be masks, there might not be masks, but there are not going to be vaccines. Are regulators moving fast enough to approve a vaccine for kids 12, uh, under 12? You know, the FDA, the CDC, you know, continue to, you know, move through the process to make sure that the vaccines are appropriately studied and that they are appropriately effective and, most importantly, equally safe in younger children as they have been in older populations. Next, more of my conversation with Dr. Matthew Lynham and what it's like to treat a child who's fighting COVID-19. I don't think that there's anything quite as terrifying to a parent than looking at their child and seeing their child struggle to breathe. And that's what these parents are going through. That's ahead. This is Georgia Today. If you like hearing the news from around the state here on Georgia Today, You'll probably like hearing how Georgia's agriculture economy feeds the country and the world on a fork in the road. I'm David Zelski, and on the Fork in the Road podcast, we feature stories from Georgia's farmers, fishermen, merchants, artisans, chefs, and others who help provide Georgia-grown products to folks in the Peach State and beyond. Find it online at gpb.org slash podcast or download it on your favorite podcast platform. You're listening to Georgia Today. I'm Steve Fennessy. Joining me is Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Matthew Lynham. I happen to live in a district where there, there is a masking mandate, so, you know, that's, that's certainly relief to, to a large degree for a parent like me and, and other parents, but so many districts don't have those mandates, and, I mean, what's going to happen? The thing that probably worries me the most is for the schools that are out there following guidance from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the CDC is to be able to keep kids safely in the classroom where you know they're going to learn the best. I worry about these schools that have chosen 
to do things differently. And I think they're going to have students and teachers who are going to get sick and in the end may jeopardize their ability to have in-person learning as long as they continue down this path. Governor Kemp says his number one priority is to convince people to get vaccinated and wear masks. No state mandates. Do it voluntarily, he says, or accept the potential consequences. In the meantime, until they're vaccinated, what advice do you have for parents in that situation who are like, my kid needs to be back in school. They can't get vaccinated. What's the best sort of mitigation measures to be taking at this point? I think a lot of it goes back to the, you know, the three W's. Practice the three W's with your child. Wear a mask, wash your hands, and social distance to reduce spreading germs. Even before vaccines, you know, we were able, a number of, many schools were able to keep their students, you know, in the classroom, um, sometimes for the entire year with these sort of uh, measures in place. You know, now we have on top of that, many um, older students and many, many teachers and uh, school staff are vaccinated. So we have this added layer of protection in place. And one of the best things that a family can do to protect their children who are too young to be vaccinated is to provide a safe cocoon around them to help keep those younger children protected until they're eligible for vaccination. It's scary for anybody to be admitted to the hospital, but for a child to be admitted to the hospital who's suffering from a disease for which there is no cure at this point, um, there's just some treatments. Um, and what what are you seeing and what do you what do you tell kids and what do you tell their parents? It is scary. It's scary for parents, you know, when their kid's sick. Um, you know, I think sometimes it's also, you know, there can be, you know, a level of of, of guilt that families, that parents feel they end up with a child that's in the hospital. And, you know, sometimes they worry, could we have done more? I think the good news is that in the vast majority of cases, we are able to, you know, through, you know, giving them oxygen and support to help them breathe more comfortably. And some of the medicines that we have, like dexamethasone and remdesivir that we um, probably most of the treatments out there use the most frequently, we're able to get children better and get them home. Most of the time, I'm able to provide some reassurance. It's like, yeah, I know you're sick right now and I know you're scared, but um, you know, we have, you know, we have some things to do that we can help you get through it. It may take us a little while, but we'll get you there. Are, are the parents allowed to stay with their kids? Absolutely. Um, you know, that's one of the, the differences in uh, children's hospitals compared to adult hospitals. You know, we, we recognize that parents and caregivers play a vital role in their child's care. Um, you know, as parents, they, you know, they understand their children you know, better than anyone. Um, they are able to, you know, communicate, you know, their child's symptoms and their concerns, you know, better than anybody can. They're a vital part of the care of, of, of children, of all children that are in the hospital. Um, so you know, they are allowed at the bedside uh, 24-7. Dr. Lynham, the, the latest data is showing that 2,000 children a day are being diagnosed in Georgia with COVID-19. Where is all this going? The thing that sort of just continues to sort of eat at me is just the fact that a lot of times we know the things that it takes to sort of control the spread of this virus so in some ways, it's a little disheartening, a little frustrating when I hear about, you know, school systems that are you know, choosing you know, strategies for their schools that are very different from what's recommended by 
the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, knowing that they're going to have kids that get sick, possibly teachers that get sick from the virus, you know, it is frustrating to see this surge that we're currently going through across the country in Georgia in children, knowing that it, it largely could have been prevented if there was more universal adoption of tried and true prevention measures. Is there an interaction you've had um, with, with a child, with a patient, or, or with their family that kind of sticks out that you feel is representative or, or emblematic in some way of, of this whole pandemic? You know, the, there actually is actually a patient that's you know, been on my mind recently. It's a teenage young lady that was admitted to the hospital. And, uh, you know, she actually ended up being uh, decently sick. And, you know, in talking with the family, the mother was telling us that everybody else in their family was was vaccinated and, you know, their daughter was not yet vaccinated. I didn't press because, I, you know, the mother was very upset and scared for her daughter. And I felt pretty confident that they had probably gotten tangled up in some of the misinformation that's out there about vaccines and you know, false statements about their impact on young women. And it may have confused them just enough that they were holding off and hadn't gotten her vaccinated yet. And then unfortunately, she became sick. And to me, it brought it into very clear focus, the true harm that can happen with misinformation about COVID-19 in general, but COVID-19 vaccines specifically. And if all of this misinformation wasn't going around, she probably would have been vaccinated and you know, most definitely wouldn't have been in the hospital. Masks and vaccinations continue to be so divisive across this state. Georgia's Commissioner of Public Health says nurses and other medical workers at vaccination sites are receiving threats in person in emails, on social media. In fact, she says one mobile vaccination site had to shut down because of all the threats. How have these last 18 months impacted you emotionally, psychologically? Um, is it is it changed your perspective at all? In some ways, you know, being able to, you know, to have a skill set that I can sort of, you know, dive in and help, you know, it's been rewarding to be able to play a role and help exhausting for just how long it's been and just to see how many people that have gotten in sick and died from all of this. Do you see the toll in your colleagues? You, know, you catch people on different days, you know, um, you know, you go through you know, a period of time where there's you know, a lot of children in the hospital, you know, a lot of kids in the ICU. And, you know, those are, those are tough days. I'll see a lot of my colleagues feeling the brunt of that. I work with a bunch of amazing you know, doctors and nurses that you know, are passionate about what they do. They love taking care of kids, and we'll be here every day that we need to taking care of kids. I wish you know, I could give people sort of a sense of how real this is and you know, how sick it can make people of all ages, including really young children. I don't think that there's anything quite as terrifying to a parent than looking at their child and seeing their child struggle to breathe. And that's what these parents are going through. Just about every parent out there would do just about anything they could to protect their child from that. That's what I would impress upon parents is we should be doing everything we can as parents to you know protect our kids and make sure that they never have to go through that and we never have to watch it. My thanks to Dr. Matthew Lynham. 
As the Delta variant strengthens its grip in Georgia, the state last week ranked behind only Texas and Florida in pediatric COVID hospital admissions. So far, of Georgia's 19,000 confirmed COVID deaths, at least 17 have been in children. For more Georgia Today, go to gpb.org. I'm Steve Fennessy. Georgia Today is a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. Subscribe to our show anywhere you get podcasts, and don't forget to leave us a review on Apple. Jess Mador produced this episode. Our engineers are Jesse Neiswanger and Jahi Whitehead. Thanks for listening. See you next week.